from Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. I invite you to listen now for the word of God. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Just say this, the Lord needs it and will send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And When he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Jesus is silent. Hosanna, his disciples cry, hurriedly cutting down branches and taking off their coats to create a path for their silent Messiah. Hosanna means save us, save us, and Jesus is silent. It must be one of the oldest prayers we can pray, as ancient as the human race. Save us. Save us from sickness, we cry, from hospital beds. Hosanna. Save us from violence, the children cry from the streets. Hosanna. Save us from the dark night, cry out those who struggle with depression or other mental illness. Hosanna. Save us from war, cry those who are daily ravaged by bombs in homes. Damascus, Aleppo, Hosanna, and Jesus is silent. Sometimes Hosanna has an intended target. Save us from the Democrats, cry the Republicans, and their Hosannas are met halfway in the air by the cries from the Democrats to save us from the Republicans. Save us from the dictator, cry the people in places who are granted no power, no voice, no authentic votes. Hosanna, save us. 
This is most likely the kind of Hosanna being uttered by Jesus' disciples on the way to Jerusalem. You are the ancestor of King David, and so you ride into Jerusalem to save us from Rome, to save us from the likes of Pontius Pilate, who had probably ridden into town himself not long before in full regalia and display of power and violence so the Jews would know who was really in charge of Jerusalem during the Passover feast. So no one gets any ideas. Save us from Caesar. Save us from all that oppresses us. Lead us into Jerusalem, swords drawn. Hosanna. And Jesus is silent. Not so in the other Gospels, you remember. In the Palm Sunday story, Matthew and Luke tell, for instance, they quote from the prophet Zechariah. Behold, your king comes to you. Mark doesn't quote him. Mark doesn't call him a king. Matthew says, the streets were filled with children. No children in Mark. Matthew comments on the state of things in the city, saying, the whole city was in turmoil. Not in Mark. Matthew says that Jesus talked to the crowds along the way and to his critics once he got into the city. Not in Mark. From the time he sat on the donkey until the next day, the next day, nothing but silence from Jesus. Both Matthew and Luke say that Jesus immediately set out to cleanse the temple after he arrived, sending the tables of the money changers flying. In Mark, it appears... The parade stopped at the city gates, and Jesus walks into Jerusalem, apparently alone. And instead of cleansing the temple, he looks, says Mark, at everything, sees that it is late, and without a word, turns around and goes to Bethany for the night. Jesus is silent. That silence can be frustrating, you know. What do we do with that silence then and and now? I remember talking with someone whose young daughter had died tragically. I met him for coffee some months after her death having walked with that family as best I could through all the raging grief, the tears, the numbing depression, as best I could. And now we were sitting in a coffee shop, and for the first time in all of those months, he was talking to me about things like football and looking forward with hopefulness to an upcoming vacation. You remember the title of this sermon series? It's the last one. 
the next day, faith and suffering. It is based on what began for me as an, in, as an informed hunch, which grew into a pastoral hypothesis of sorts, and then something I've spent the last four years studying intently as my doctoral thesis. I believe that most pastors who are educated in mainline seminaries are taught the same thing, essentially, when in the face of those who are suffering. Be present, offer love and support, allow whatever feelings there are to come out without judgment, but do not, under any circumstances, venture forth explanations or engage in theological speculation or, God forbid, utter platitudes. You're not allowed to say, well, she's in a better place now. You're not allowed to say, God must have needed another angel. You're not allowed to say any of the at leasts. At least she isn't suffering. At least he died doing what he loved. At least you still have your other children. At least you can still have other children. None of that. Don't say those things, they said to us. And we listened for the most part. But the thing that I have noticed over the years is that not on the first day, which is a metaphor for the depths of grief and suffering, but on the next day, which is likewise a metaphor for when a person of faith has gotten to a place where that grief and suffering are still very real, but there is added to it a question which they are able to begin to articulate usually put like this. Where was God when all of this was happening? Where is God now? Who is God to me after all of this? How can I integrate what has happened to me with my faith in God? In the God I thought I always believed in. How is my faith in God changing? Do I still have faith? These are the questions I think many persons of faith may begin to ask on the next day. And too often what we as pastors and maybe a few church members and friends offer in the face of these questions is silence. Well, here I was in the coffee shop with this father, and it felt to me, though I wouldn't have used these words then, that maybe this was the next day for him. So I turned what had been a light conversation about this and that in a faith direction. And I just said, you know, I've I continue to pray for you and for your family. I believe God is with you. And I'm really sorry for all that you've been through. That's all I said. 
And he looked up at me with a deadly serious gaze and said, you can pray all you want, Pastor. No one's listening. And if someone is, you tell him for me he's a son of a, and I'll let you fill in the blank. I was, to put it mildly, taken aback. I had to fight down the impulse as he continued looking at me across the table to call for the check and run out the door. Instead, I responded with what felt like a trembling voice. I will. He said, what? I said, I I will. I will tell God that for you. And his face changed and he laughed. He said, you will? You will say that to God? I said, well, if Jeremiah can call God a liar and live the tale of the tale, I suppose I can call God that on your behalf, of course. (laughs) And he said, you can't tell me you've never wondered about it whether there's anyone listening, and if there is, why he's not doing anything about all of this. And I said, no, I can't tell you that. I have wondered, and I suspect I will wonder again. And he said, boy, you better be careful. You keep talking like that, and you won't have a job. I must tell you, I was terrified as that conversation went on. I knew I was walking on holy ground. That space between you and a person who is suffering, daring to name the name of God, talking about faith in ways that feel both shockingly uncertain and profoundly and authentically real. And that's why I wanted at the end of this sermon series to place before all of us Mark's Palm Sunday Jesus, the silent one. So many of us have experienced that silence. We cry, Hosanna, save us. And Jesus says not a word. We call him blessed, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, summoning ancient prophet voices and nothing but silence. We lift our voices in the hope that David's kingdom is about to come and take out all the other kingdoms. And still he says nothing. And for me, the most striking image of all in Mark is when Jesus appears to dismount from his humble animal, walk alone into the city of Jerusalem, look around at everything in complete silence. What does he see? What is the everything before him? What does he feel? The text is as silent as he is. 
It's late, and so he leaves as quickly and as silently as he arrived. A theologian I've mentioned now a few times in this series, and one I've leaned on heavily in my studies, is the late Marilyn McCord Adams. I thought of her again as I reflected on my conversation with that grieving father. She writes about what she calls horrors. And she flatly states that if we believe God created the world as it is, and if God created the world in such a way that we are uniquely vulnerable to horrific things happening, then God is ultimately responsible. God doesn't, she says, visit these horrors on people. But she says God created a world in which we are vulnerable to them. And God, if God is a God of love and mercy and justice, will therefore make it right. Will make good on it. So I think if Marilyn McCord Adams was sitting with that grieving father... I believe she would have been the first one to say to him, I'm with you. I'm with you on God's responsibility. I'm with you in your anger. And that for him right then would probably have been all she said. But she goes on to say in her work, that based on her reading of the Bible and the long church traditions and her reflections on her own exposure to deeply suffering populations in the HIV community in the 1980s, she believes that God has to make good. And she says, amid every experience of suffering, God has provided the greatest good God can provide, which is God's own self, communion with God. And she says most people during suffering are not able to see or receive such a gift and should not be judged in any way for that. She says that's where the church comes in as a community of support and, and healing where, where suffering persons can begin once again to maybe appropriate that gift and receive it. And she acknowledges some may not ever be able to see or receive it until they wake up in the arms of God in the final kingdom. And then they will receive it. But don't you kid yourself, she says. God is faithful. God is good. And God will make good. Where does God make good? On the cross. Where God reveals the depths of God's love for and presence with us in deepest suffering where God suffers for the suffering world and where that oneness 
ushers in the kind of life that will open a sealed tomb. And our tombs as well. Jesus' silence speaks. The disciples are crying out for salvation, and Jesus intends to give them that great gift, but not in the way they expect. The kingdom is coming, is drawing near, but its arrival will not be with beating drums and galloping horses, but in the sound of nails being driven into soft flesh. He does come in the name of the Lord, but soon he will cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Joining his cries with ours, And in that deepest communion with us, planting that wondrous gift, intimacy with God through Christ, communion with God's Spirit. That's what I wish I had thought of in that coffee shop. I wish I had added in some way, you know, to read my Bible... Jesus felt the same way you do. Walked the same path of suffering and grief. And Jesus himself cried out to God and was met with silence. I will say it now because it is the great gift we finally acknowledge in the holy week that is beginning now. Better yet, let's allow Jesus to say it. As he looks around at everything, everything, even here, even now, in silence that speaks on the next day. Amen. Amen.